0: Hey guys, this is Fred from Gaming History 101. Um, as a real quick forward to this uh, episode, uh, this was actually recorded a week ago, um, which kind of explains the, all the references to uh, late November when this is actually coming out in December. I um, had a little bit of storage space issue um, for my podcast server, but uh, got those kinks worked out and we should have weekly ongoing podcasts from now on. Anyway, um, so this uh, show is still as relevant as it always was and does announce the contest winner and everything for December. Um, sorry, it's coming out about a week late. So without further ado, here you go. This week, we discuss two of the most obscure franchises on the market. What's up, guys, and welcome to Gaming History 101's official podcast. Um, This week we're going to be discussing uh, (laughs) the Halo franchise and the Call of Duty franchise. Um, As uh, the two big uh, first-person shooter powerhouses that are coming out this year, um, I thought it would be nice to go back and check their roots. Now, I know probably many of you are thinking, it's uh, Fred, you know, these are not um, really retro uh, games at all and uh to a certain extent you would be correct now i know we bend and, and stretch what retro can actually mean and uh i think even more importantly um it's just important to go back and see uh, the building blocks of these games um i think a lot of us remember when these games came out i think they're new enough and popular enough that many of us have gone back and hopefully played the first game in the series um which right now halo is teetering on 12 years old and um Call of Duty is nine, so I'd say that's uh, that puts them. Or I'm sorry, eleven years old and nine. Uh, I'd say that puts them pretty safe to uh, to be part of a retro podcast. And definitely the history that comes before that is much more important with the two companies that made them up. Um, so without further ado, we're going to jump into them. I'd like to point out uh, that the reason I'm picking Halo first is just from a historical standpoint. Um, Bungie was established earlier Halo came out earlier than Call of Duty so that's why I went with it uh you know I know the fanboys out there are always going to say oh I picked one over the other uh, it was is is completely based off of when they established themselves so whether you get like it or not it's not a you know uh, an objective or it's an objective perspective and and a fact that Bungie was established first so anyway uh jumping right into it so uh before Halo Combat Evolved did premiere um there was a, a company called Bungie. And um, when they originally got their start, they were a couple of guys out in, um, basically in, uh, in Chicago. Um, but uh, but um, basically uh, the, the two big founders were uh, Alex uh, Seropian and Jason Jones. Um, and what they had done was uh, these two guys got together uh, in Chicago and decided to adapt an Apple II game called Minotaur or Minotaur. I never know how you really pronounce that. But anyway, they had decided to uh, port this game over to uh, Max, Um, and I believe it was in 91. Um, They decided they were going to port this game over and and, uh, basically give people an updated version of of a favorite from the Apple days. Um, At the time, the reason they had chosen Max was because um, uh, Serapin um, had... uh, had, uh, kind of grown up with Macs and Apples and, uh, really cared for them. Uh, the other reason was, um, because Macintosh didn't really have a lot of, uh, uh, games coming out for it. It was the minority in that term. Um, you were more open to what you could adapt. Um, so they did create Minotaur and, um, from what I understand it did pretty good. It got some relative praise. Um, but at that point they were just trying to, uh, kind of figure out if they could, if they could make some money. Um, once they did, uh, they had kind of some fans and things like that, and they decided um, that they would establish a game or establish a gaming company and, and start making games. So the next thing they did, um, and, and you'll kind of notice this about Bungie—they're kind of always ushered by the next big project. They come up with, you know, this new idea on how to do something, and they begin with their old property and then kind of convert it into their new. Um, so either a property goes over and then gets adjusted at the last minute, or game does and you'll see this as like an ongoing theme for the company uh, but uh, so the their next thing was uh they were really digging on how Wolfenstein 3D looked and things like that uh mind you this this puts um I would say this is roughly around yeah 92 93 I think Wolfenstein. I don't have any of that history in front of me, but I think ID was releasing Wolfenstein right around that time. Um, Wolfenstein 3D, that is. And so they wanted to do it. Um, Wolfenstein 3D, very famously, also came out on the Mac. Um, I knew that was kind of a big deal at the time. Um, so they decided that they were going to um, create like a 3D shooter perspective, uh, 3D version of Minotaur. And uh, and uh, uh, you know, basically, they learned for those who haven't played Minotaur. Minotaur is a, a top-down you know kind of uh, kind of action game. And uh, they learned it just really wouldn't have worked very well. So instead what they decided to do um was uh was make a game uh, Pathways into Darkness. Um and this was uh, again it was just a very kind of story-based uh, shooter. Um I in fact I don't I need to take that back. I'm not yes, it was a shooter. Okay, I wasn't quite sure um if it was a shooter um and uh and i do remember it was given like game of the year award it was considered a role-playing game i think it was because it was so focused on its story it had lots of story elements in it and um, they got some money so they were able to do something with it um and it's around this time uh probably in the mid 90s uh that they develop uh probably their first game that has a lot of praise and is is very well known um which is uh um basically in 1994 they they created um a marathon Marathon uh, has a lot of building blocks that are uh, similar to the Halo series, meaning it, you'll see a lot of references to the two. Um, it was basically, you know, Doom for the Mac, <laughs> you know, back in that time. Uh, but I think the big thing that differentiated Marathon from other first-person shooters was uh, they still wanted a large amount of story. For those of you who have not played Wolfenstein or Doom or various other Doom clones, as they were called back then, um, they really didn't have any storyline. Doom itself had a very sad storyline to begin with. Um, and sad in terms of content and quality, not in terms of the actual theme. Um, and so, uh, with Marathon, there are a bunch of terminals all over the place. And like, having played some of the Marathon games, um, it, it's very interesting. You learn a lot. And there's like basically a novel that kind of explains what happened with this, this alien outbreak and things like that. Um As you're going around, um, so that's kind of a, a cool concept and um and obviously it worked because uh when they released to the Mac, it became a huge success on a relatively you know i mean big fish little pond kind of kind of thing um and immediately they rushed their way into uh the second game. Uh, the game, the only game to be released on outside of the Mac platform as far as I know, maybe you got a PC port, but uh, it's on Xbox 360. I think it's on Xbox Live Arcade for five bucks, but it might be ten, uh, is Marathon Durandal, which is the sequel. Um, much like many of the games like it, Doom 2 and things like that, uh, while there are, uh, throwbacks to the original Marathon game and, and obviously the plot kind of establishes from a mythos, um, you don't necessarily need to, uh, again, it's still an archaic game at its core. It came out in 95, late 95. So, um, so basically, uh, it, uh, it was, it was just, you know, kind of continuing the storyline, gave you a little bit more information. And obviously, um, you know, most people who just want to jump into it and kill things, uh, were able to do so. Um, and, uh, later on they would go on and uh create uh the third marathon game. Um, but, uh, uh, which again um, a lot of people criticized it. it had a lot of really goofy things going on and um, and, and basically uh, um, lots of people basically don't play the third marathon game um, but uh, this was at this time this is where they kind of uh, you know decide that they they don't really care much for a lot of the contracts and stuff. I know that Marathon was always originally supposed to make its way over to PCs uh, or Windows 95 specifically as an operating system as opposed to DOS as many of them were prior to that. Um and it never really worked out. Um and they they always blamed uh, the way kind of like game distribution and and things like that uh worked. Um so moving on, uh the next thing they would do is create a strategy game. Uh, as far as I know, it's an RTS. Uh, I've played it for a while, and I would consider it an RTS by by every stretch of the imagination. But it's kind of like a mature version. And when I say mature, I mean more in like graphical content version of Warcraft. So, uh, and it's known as Myth. Um, so, um, imagine Warcraft only um, much more picky. I would say in a lot of your resource management. Um, but also much more rewarding in that regard, not to say Warcraft is bad. Again, I'm not trying to, to pick at uh, blizzards property. Um, I'm just saying it's, it's different for its own reasons. Um, but this was their first game that released simultaneously on, um, Mac and windows 95 platforms. Um, I, I bought myth when it was like on clearance, you know, probably right around the same time. Halo came out. Um, and again, myth came out in 96, 97, I think. Um, and, uh, and um, uh, basically, uh, Halo would be two thousand one. So yeah, it was it was a decent gap of, of time. That's why it was so cheap. Um, and and they did go on to make Myth two. Um, and it's around this time that uh, that Halo starts uh, showing its face. So um, uh, nineteen ninety nine is when they first premiered um, Halo. They they did it at a Max World app Expo. Um, so a Mac world expo. So again, focus on the Macintosh. Um, and it was going to be a Mac PC property, um, that was, uh, you know, I've heard different stories and different ideas as to how it started. Um, but basically from what I understand, it was going to be like, uh, what you guys know of as halo wars. It was going to be a real time strategy game, uh, set in this, uh, this futuristic world where these, um, rings from space, uh, you know, would exist and, um, and these uh the the this uh preserved creature alien species that was basically uh um, Bungie's adaptation of uh alien <laughs> you know of the a the xenomorph from alien um you know was was preserved so that they couldn't hurt anybody and if if allowed off of these rings they could be a detriment to the universe known as the flood um but the guardians and protectors of that um were to be uh the this group of uh, uh beings known as the covenant and um for various reasons one way or the other um earth becomes a target and the covenant descend um upon um earth now again it, that's very similar to the halo plotline um and it's it's unknown off the top of my head again a lot of this stuff's fuzzy because they keep changing their minds and i don't want to trust wikipedia um but uh but from what i understand it might have been earth you know finding the halos and uh, going there for research and the covenant are just protecting them so i'm not quite sure how that original plot line started um but eventually it became a third person shooter um where it was going to be a little more action oriented think of almost the star wars battlefront series um and uh and you know you would have the covenant forces and uh and the obviously the spartan forces um And then what happened after that is a little bit interesting. So, um, basically, um, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, takes a look at this and, uh, realizes that, uh, you know, this is going to happen and it's cool and he, he kind of likes it, but you know, it's, it's well known that Steve Jobs is not, um, Really into video games. He doesn't really much care. Well, wasn't really into video games. He didn't much care for them. Um, So while he had no problem with them generating revenue for his company and being on his platform, he definitely appreciated them. Um, You know, it just really wasn't a large centralized focus for him. Meanwhile, you've got Microsoft, uh, a PC manufacturer, looking to break into the hardware market and um in, in in it's in 2000 basically um you got microsoft wanting to have a killer uh property to launch day and date with its xbox console and um at this point bungie's kind of changed its tune on how it feels about pc development because um mac while it's an open frame uh, again like i said because of steve jobs mentality and just mac's mentality as a whole They were more interested in the Final Cut Pros and the graphical prowess of the Macintosh for the, you know, for the elite businessman and not really for the gamer. So while they allowed these things to come out, they weren't exactly welcoming them with open arms or encouraging them. Meanwhile, you got Microsoft over here, tons of money, very eager, um, for new ideas and properties and things like this and are, um, heavily enticing, uh, Bungie. To come on their side. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, obviously Halo gets previewed at the uh, E3 2000, and um, all of a sudden uh, Microsoft goes on to announce that behind closed doors, uh, they've agreed to purchase Bungie Studios. So now Bungie is full-fledged Microsoft property. Um, as a result, obviously it was pretty well known that Halo would no longer be released under the Mac. Um, but also the interesting development was that um, they were going to be fronting this games division, uh, Microsoft Game Studios. Now, granted, Bungie kept its own company, but, you know, the Microsoft Game Division uh, would be promoting uh, new games for uh, its new hardware, Um Though it's proprietary hardware, the Xbox basically. And so the question was, you know, what would become of Halo? Would it be canceled, um, in the interest of creating something new? You know, uh, would it be affected? What would go on? Um, it was pretty well known that real time strategy was going to be hard to adapt to consoles and previous attempts um, at the time um, the Command and Conquer series on the PlayStation and Saturn, or uh, Starcraft on the uh, on the N64, it just didn't really work out too well. So, uh, if you're going to be the killer studio that's going to be doing a launch game for Microsoft's Xbox you're probably not going to make it a real-time strategy. Um, or even, well, and and then there was the third-person shooter perspective, so that that could have made for a good game. Third-person shooters were definitely uh, still prevalent at that time. Um, but they decided it was going to be a first-person shooter. And that was when people kind of perked up, because um, much like the real-time strategy game, the first-person shooter kind of belonged to the PCs. Um, the functionality you got with moving a mouse um, and keyboard um, allowed for you to, or multidirectional, um, viewing strafing was made a lot easier. You know, you basically controlled the player's movement with WASD, W-A-S-D, and then you could look around with the mouse, um, made also for very accurate, uh, shooting, uh, as long as you're not me who's playing the game. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea that you could get this kind of versatility out of a console game was pretty much unheard of. Um, for those of you who haven't played Doom, on like the N sixty four, the PlayStation, or even the Super Nintendo, um, you know, it's it's really weird kind of motion, and you don't have that second analog stick really doing anything. And the reason why was because it all kind of started with Halo, and so um, what would end up happening is uh, Halo would release alongside the Microsoft uh, Xbox, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in two thousand and one. And, um, uh, at that time I should point out those that know, uh, the other Bungie property, Oni, um, Oni once uh Bungie was bought by Microsoft, um, was sold off along with the myth, um, uh, with the myth, uh, IP, um, to take to, uh, who had published the games. Um, and, uh, they would continue to and release Oni on the PlayStation one in 2001 as well. So that's how Bungie was able to release two games at the exact same time. Um, I also believe that Oni was not finished by Bungie. So they, they had what Oni was started by and then they, they, they wrapped it up. Um, but yeah, October 1st, 2007, um, uh, Basically, um, they uh, they allowed uh, Bungie to become Microsoft announced that Bungie would become independent. Er, sorry, um, sorry, I got my research mixed up. Anyway, um, so basically, in late two thousand and one, um, the Xbox comes out uh, for the holiday season, and uh, Halo comes out with it, and people were not quite sure what to make of it. You've got this brand new property with this brand new console, and they're leading with a first person shooter. Um, but it looked great. It looked absolutely fabulous. It had surround sound because the uh, Xbox notorious for uh, optical cable and stuff like that. Um, and it made it work. And the way it did it was with the second analog stick. Prior to this, I don't think it was the first game to do it, but it might be. Um, you know, the, the dual analogs, um, were never really utilized. They were kind of put into play for the, uh, for the first PlayStation, they had dual analogs, but they weren't used really for that purpose. They were used in other games for different purposes and honestly, I can't even think of the games that used them on the uh, on the original PlayStation but I, I'm sure you uh, you great guys out in the community, uh, especially uh, those with a much more vast PlayStation one library than me um, can definitely tell me what they were used for but you know I think uh, I think Halo was the first one to really utilize them the way we know of with dual analog sticks. And, um, and it really revolutionized everything because Halo worked as a first person shooter and it was a rich, beautiful game with vast open vistas. Most first person shooters up and until that point were very, um, they were either wasted real estate like Duke Nukem, where you have these massive levels where very little happens and you're just kind of exploring, or you had something more like Doom where it was a very linear experience. Where you would just kind of go down a pathway and then usually backtrack until you got to some big bad. Um, Halo didn't have that. Uh, for those that haven't played uh, the original Halo, um, you know you have varying degrees of enemies from the grunts, which are the little guys that can be taken out easily, um, you know, all the way up to you know some of the more elite, um, the elite specifically, and various other enemies. But there's there's no real boss character, um, you know, to a certain extent. Um, the levels are somewhat linear, um, but especially in the very beginning, um, there's lots of areas to explore, and there's usually an enemy or two or some reason to be in those areas. It, it is kind of this mass scale battle going on, so you're bumping into everything from platoons kind of hanging out to um, to guys basically ready for a full-fledged assault, um, and there's lots of just really cool ideas in it. Um, the sticky grenade is in there, which is a grenade that literally latches on and kills Um, all of it was just very cool at the time. There was vehicles, um, you would run, you, you could do, uh, you know, driving and or shooting, um, and moving around. And then halfway through the game, you end up up on a halo and, or maybe you're on the halo. I don't remember. All I remember was, um, you get to a point where the flood is now invaded your area and now, uh, you know, the covenant are no longer your only enemy. And, uh, I think the most famous of, of halo is the lovely library level, which, um, is the bane of probably everyone's existence where you were basically, you had a shotgun and you were just uh, trying to make it to the next checkpoint. Um, while you're being followed by this kind of like robotic companion and, uh, Just trying not to uh, die too quickly. (laughs) I think that's the other thing. Um, Regenerative health. Uh, You didn't really have regenerative health. Chief always had like a a finite amount of health, but he had shields. And as long as you could keep those shields up or not let them deplete completely um, before they recharged you could really live forever. And so this kind of, you know, started that whole trend of the regenerative health. Again, a lot of the things that really work, um, to this day, uh, in first person shooters was started here. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, except for the, the fact that the pistol can be a sniper rifle. I think that's a halo exclusive. Um, but you know, and and Chief also had this AI female companion uh, named Cortana, um, and they had a very interesting relationship that kind of develops as you go on and obviously, in the grand series as an arc which we won 't get into in this episode, um, you know continues but uh, but yeah, Halo was very cool um, now, granted when the game was going to be marketed um, and and i 'll get to the multiplayer in a second once I can talk about this uh, when the game was going to be marketed. Microsoft was worried that simply naming it Halo wouldn't give enough of an uh, impression as to what it is. So for those that are wondering, Combat Evolved was uh, a, a postscript given to the game by the marketing department uh, that Bungie really didn't have any say in, and it would become part of the game. So it's kind of interesting because lots of people delve into the theories as to why it might have been called Combat Evolved. And it was no big deal. It was purely to... uh, uh purely for marketing reasons. So you knew it was a shooter. Um, and uh, and and so there's a there's a second part of uh, Halo, which um, this was one of the first times this happened, which was a multiplayer component. Now, Bungie had been a long time Mac and PC developer, and every game, including Marathon, um, and possibly even the earlier games, had online support and did allow for online team deathmatch. So naturally, they were going to include it in Halo. Um, Now, Xbox Live uh, had some hiccups in its overall launch, and it just wasn't ready to go. Um, So the decision was made um, that the multiplayer component would remain um, local, offline only. And basically, uh, these modes would allow up to uh, 16 people to play against each other. And um, you could uh, do this through... um, through the uh what they called a system link uh through LANs uh local area networks um which is probably why see I was in college it was my freshman year when Halo came out or er, mm, yeah it was uh, actually the beginning of my sophomore year but um and I just remember the dorms and the uh and the um the the frat houses being nuts because you could get uh, you know one or two halos uh halo games um per Xbox and uh, kind of link them up and have some pretty crazy games going. Um, the game, the the console version also had co-op, so for those that want to, you can split screen through that whole game together. Um, and I love that even to this day. I think there's no real explanation. Halo Three tried to do it for a while, but you know, of this, uh, you know, just two Master Chiefs just running around <laughs> trying to save the universe. Um, but you know, it really kind of brought it all together. And and Halo. Uh, you know, even though it wasn't online, um, the LAN halo was huge. It had just so many legs and people were playing the hell out of it. Um, now it would later get released on uh, PC and Mac, um, and uh, Gearbox would actually create the custom edition uh which looked gorgeous um and came out on PCs Now those would integrate um the 16 player online multiplayer um and uh actually in Gearbox's version they even had a map editor and things like that which probably would later go on and become the building blocks for the Forge uh map editor that would uh, come out later um but yeah so so that was Halo and um Right after that, Halo gave rise to two very interesting trends. Um, so first of all, it, it sold 6.5 million copies, which um, with the 11 million approximate um, uh, Xbox consoles sold, that uh that equates to a 50% purchase rate. Uh pretty snazzy. Basically half of the Xboxes that went out the door had a copy of Halo. And to this day, um, the original Xbox version of Halo is uh very easy to find and, and definitely very popular. Uh I think it's been released tons of times. Uh obviously there was an HD re-release um, on uh on Xbox 360 within the last year. Or so I've not played it. I'm sure it looks gorgeous and I'm sure aside from that it's pretty much the same game. Um, it was 343's first test into the, uh, into the Halo world before releasing Halo 4 eventually. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, what it did though, the two big significant things it did was, one, first person shooters were back on the menu. They were going to be part of um you know PC or they weren't just part of PC culture anymore and it would give rise to tons of first person shooters coming to consoles suddenly you've got half-life 1 and 2 making their way to uh to home consoles you've got um uh you've got uh, red faction becoming a playstation property that was first person shooters obviously plenty of first person shooters made their way to um to xbox And, um, and you start to see PC ports of first person shooters move their way over. Obviously, Deus Ex 1 made its way to PlayStation 2. Ironically, the sequel, I think probably because it was online, uh, with Xbox Live and things like that, um, you know, would, would make its way over to Xbox. Um, once Xbox Live goes live, and we won't really talk about that because that was more like 2004 with the sequel Halo, uh, sequel to Halo, Halo 2. Um, you know, online shooters would yet again bring consoles even closer to being a full PC experience, much like they are now, um, which I know is debatable, but we'll, we'll say that for the sake of argument. Um, the other interesting trend that uh, it started was um, machinima. So... Um, you know, machinima for, for those that don't know. And again, conflicting stories, depending on who you ask on the internet, uh, halo was the cause of the first machinima, but it was the idea that you would take open environments such as, um, you know, the multiplayer verse of halo and, um, use it to create characters and storylines that have nothing to do with Halo that can often be comedies or different stories. You could make a cartoon out of just moving characters in Halo and then adding your own voices onto it. Uh, the most famous of these being the ongoing series, uh, well ongoing is not correct cause I don't think they're making new ones, but the long running series red versus blue, um, which if you haven't seen that first season, uh, by rooster teeth, it's absolutely hilarious. They use filthy language and it's just the idea that blood Gulch was a place where all kinds of crazy stuff could happen. Um, and it's absolutely hilarious. Um, but yeah, so apparently the rise of machinima as a whole, uh, is thanks, uh, mostly to, uh, to halo. Um, Again, Halo would start a huge phenomenon. It's a great game. Um, and seeing as how it's available on basically everything Microsoft based, uh, it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't had a chance. And, uh, Bungie would continue on to make many, many Halo games until right now, um, being, uh, in the dark, uh, as they, uh, work still as an independent studio to create their next big game, which, uh, has kind of been hinted at, uh, in the MMO world and move on. But, uh, but yeah, for a long time, Halo would, would continue to do so. And as I was kind of talking about, but skipping ahead in my research, while it's not really retro, it should also be noted that, uh, Bungie becomes an independent studio from Microsoft in, uh, October of 2007, um, and, and remained as such before moving forward and, uh, it remains an independent studio with its new partner, uh, Activision. Um, but obviously, uh, you know they they still under fall under a publisher hub uh, because it's very expensive to bring out games. So um, without further ado, uh, we'll we'll kind of close the book on Halo and uh, move into our next series. Um, so as I had said before, um, the next series that we're going to be talking about is the Call of Duty franchise. Now Call of Duty, much like its uh, franchise and games themselves, um, tells a much different, a much more different tale. Uh, Than Bungie, a uh, tale of deceit and um, backstabbing and, and wrongdoing and, and company jumping left and right. Uh, but we'll get to that shortly. Um, but they all, all of the roots of uh, Call of Duty, surprisingly, ties all the way back to a little EA studio. Uh, that EA studio is known as 2015 Inc. Um, 2015 Inc. Uh, was created by EA um, to create uh, different things. The biggest one, um, and, and definitely the one that, that set them on the map, uh, was Medal of Honor: Allied Assault. Uh, this was a first-person shooter that came out in 2002 uh, for Windows, um, and it would later come out uh, a year later on the Mac. Um, it's a first-person shooter. Um, it was uh, it was a Steven Spielberg game, so Steven Spielberg was trying to grasp. Uh, the World War II shooter. Uh, those that don't know the Medal of Honor series would get started by EA on uh, the PlayStation 1. I think it was probably also a PC property, maybe even before that. But yeah, um, you know, it would tell the story of war heroes in World War II. And at this time, uh, you know, uh, 1998, which is somewhat close to the middle of you know, Steven Spielberg releases um, Saving Private Ryan and gets extremely interested in the World War II, campaign. so this is kind of where it all branches out. And this game, specifically Allied Assault, um, is a PC game that basically tackles um, most of the events that occur in the uh, In fact, um, from what I understand, the Omaha Beach uh, mission is c- taken completely from the film, uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, the game did run uh, ID Tech three. Um, also known as the Quake 3 Arena engine, and so that was kind of how that game worked. And uh, what's interesting is as they move forward, um, uh, the Infinity Ward, who would be formed out of this studio, uh, would continue to use that uh, id tech, and from what I understand, it's still, to a certain extent, part of, you know, kind of the engine that's used today, but I don't know if that's completely true. Uh, But anyway, Allied Assault would come out and receive just incredible scores. Um, Tons of people very impressed with the D-Day handling. Um, The idea that it kind of bounces between the different uh, parts of World War II and the different um, events that happen on the Allied team. Um, It would get um, a couple of additional uh, bundles and expansions and all this fun stuff. Um, and obviously uh, have some really good multiplayer uh, that would allow you to play different nationalities. Um, but out of this, uh, something much larger would spawn. And ironically, it would spawn um, <laughs> away from EA and uh, kind of underneath uh, their noses uh, at, over at Activision, the big rival for EA, Um and so uh basically what would come of this is uh Vance or Vince Zampella and Grant Collier uh would create um, Infinity Ward um, shortly after this. Um, in two thousand and two in fact. So, you know, basically uh later on in the year after this game shipped. Um, also bringing on board, um, Jason West. Um, so for those that think that, uh, that, um, uh, Zambella and West were the original founders, that's technically true, but there was a, a third person. Um, and, uh, the, uh, studio was established, uh, with 22 members, all of them from 2015 Inc., and, uh, Action, uh, or Activision, um, you know started off by establishing the company financially and uh and, and owning 30 percent um so the idea was made that uh you keep them doing what they do infinity ward wanted to get into the first person shooter especially the world war ii genre which was all the rage back then and um and so it was decided that they would make a world war ii shooter um called a uh, call of duty um Call of Duty would also use id Tech 3 or Quake 3 engine, um, but they would use a proprietary license. So they would create, um, lots of adaptations to the engine to make it do things perhaps not every other user of the engine could make it do. And maybe even things that, uh, you know, id wasn't completely aware it was capable of, or they would help them do certain, um, refining to it. Um, it's important to note that up until recently, Call of Duty, the original, um, was, uh, solely pretty much PC property. Um, it came out, uh, uh, let's see, when did it come out? Looks like, uh, holiday season 2003. So it didn't take him too long to make it. Um, and what the original Call of Duty would do, um, is basically take you through the three parts of the Allied Assault on Germany. So obviously you would play as, um, the, uh, the Americans fighting in the war you would play as the Brits, and you would also play as the Russians. And obviously the Russians would be the ones who would eventually, you know, kind of storm into Berlin and the very famous posting of the Russian flag as uh, Berlin fell um, and was taking control would all be part of this campaign. Um, and it was very interesting because um, lots of things that uh, – Kind of became stables for the series. We're all established there. I should also point out the game looked absolutely amazing back in these days. Um, but uh, you know, like for those who have played the series, especially into the Modern Warfare series and things like that, um, Price the uh, the uh, the the war veteran from Modern Warfare One and Two um, is actually and three for that matter um, is uh, established here in the first game. Um, and there's a very famous mission on a submarine. That you'll sneak on with Price and kind of do the closest thing in 2003 to uh, stealth killing, um, you know, uh, different people um, on that ship, and then make your way to the end, um, and uh, and various other things. Now, while the Call of Duty series has kind of its uh, its reputation embedded in this idea that you are the super soldier that single handedly takes out everything and and solves you know, all the, all the horrible monstrosities of war for an entire battalion, um, you know, uh, this game did a lot to make you feel like you were on the lines and you started off lucky and then continued to be this hardened war, you know, veteran, uh, well, hardened warrior who would make its way to the end, but you were kind of, you know, nondescript person here, there and everywhere. Cause you were bouncing all over the place. Um, and, you know, lots of the missions would kind of integrate the these theories and ideas of the things going on in the war. Um, from what I understand, very historically accurate. I've got a relatively decent knowledge of World War II and having played through Call of Duty, the original, a um, couple of times. Um, you know, everything looks on the up and up to me. Um, but I just remember when Medal of Honor came out, a lot of the details to stuff like the SS music coming through the speakers and kind of how... Um, you know, like in Wolfenstein it looked like a, a, a normal room with just little plastered Nazi symbols and, you know, the eagle and the and the swastika and everything all over the place, whereas this felt more like um, a fully fleshed out, you know, the castles with with the Nazi stuff. It wasn't just painted all over the place. It was just kind of where you would expect it to, where the crowds were forming and things like that. But the back alleyways and alcoves and stuff didn't have little Nazi flags posted up and everything around there. They were drab, dank environments that wouldn't have anything up on the walls because that's kind of how it worked. Um, you know, most notably on that was a, uh, a a scene where you where you bum rush a dam. Um, it was very cool. But again, these are all just little missions. Another thing I liked was, um, and probably Call of Duty was one of the first to do this, was this concept that uh, the circumstance that happens and the enemy oppression. Uh, makes for a much more dynamic story than, say, the level design. Um, I think even more so than Halo or really anything out there, um, minimalism was highly utilized in the first Call of Duty. There are literally missions in that where, um, there's a snow mission that comes to mind the most where you're gonna go up a street, bank over past a, uh, a machine gun turret that's like kind of embanked into the ground, um, go into a hangar, take out a bunch of Nazis in the hangar, get out the back and jump on a truck. I mean, it, you're literally walking down a street. But that's a 30-minute mission because of the placement and uh, and rush of opposing forces that you will meet. And I think that's really cool because you could walk through that whole thing in, like, less than a minute. But it takes you, like, 30 to burn through it. Well, I mean, on Hardened or Veteran, of course, I played the more difficult settings, but... Um, I always thought that was a really cool idea and it was interesting to see uh, so early in because I don't think many shooters at the time were doing that. I think shooters uh, historically, if you pay attention, um, do almost too good of a job, uh, at least until this generation or the one just before it, at giving uh, way too much real estate to explore. Lots of Alcove's in the interest of making wide open spaces. Um, and Halo, you know, while it does have enemies scattered about and, and gives you kind of relevance as to why these things would be there, it still is, you know, lots of space that you're not really gonna use and forced invisible walls so that you don't have the grandiose world that like Far Cry has or something like that. So, um, very interesting. Um, but I just remember the missions were all pretty cool. Um, you're doing different things, um especially in the Russian front. I guess they didn't have enough weapons for everybody, so you know your first mission on the Russian front, I remember being just just like tear your hair out because you are part of a two man brigade. Everybody was two men because they only had enough rifles for every two men, so you would both grab a rifle, one person had ammo, one person had a rifle, and then when one of you died, the other person. Became the soldier with the gun and you have to kind of rush through bullet fire and things like that, um, without really having a gun or the ability to shoot. And it makes you feel very powerless and very scared and, and like you really need to hide. And I think that's something that, uh, is definitely important, um, you know, when you're, when you're considering that. And, uh, obviously, uh, you know, it comes to a head, um, in relevance, uh, when you compare it to, you know, war games and, and just the whole concept up to this point. So. Um, so yeah, Call of Duty was very, very cool. And, um, it wouldn't just be some, some casual game either, uh, when it came out. I do remember, um, Call of Duty was, uh, was, was huge when it released on PCs. It sold like hotcakes, um, it got ported all over the place, um, it even got a version on the, uh, Nokia N-Gage. <laughs> it got Game of the Year's editions and collector's editions and things like that. Um, let me see here. It, it had like some staggering amount, like, like 90 game of the year awards. It was, you know, considered by E3 to be like one of the greatest things out there. Um, and, uh, oh, 50 editors choice awards. Um, it is among the uh, highest rating games in, 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 game ranking. Um, tons of commercial success and, uh, just, just very, very popular. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think that's significant, and um, Infinity Ward wouldn't really waste much time uh, turning around and creating a, a sequel, which would take on a new perspective, but we won't really talk about Call of Duty 2, because um, I do think it's way too fresh. But it would take on a new perspective and kind of extend the concept of the war, but when you think about it on the Allied front, you've got a good... Solid seven years and plenty of battles to deal with and plenty of times where there were war heroes and, and reasons to, uh, cover them. Um, and so, you know, the Call of Duty franchise was, was not shy on, on that kind of stuff. But, yeah, they would, they would release that and, um, you know, Call of Duty 2 would release day and date also on the, uh, the new Xbox 360 console, which would bring it to consoles where it would stay and probably seize most of its sales nowadays. Um, but, uh, and again, Infinity Ward would go on and, and create, um, for a long time there, some of the highest quality first person shooters, um, that justifiably built the Call of Duty brand into what it is today. Now, granted, since all the detractions and stuff like that and the leaving of, uh, of Weston Zampella, um, it should be noted, actually, I mentioned Collier, Grant Collier in 2009, Collier, uh, leaves Infinity Ward. Um, pretty much amidst the uh, the whole... I think this would be around the Modern Warfare era, um, to go on and um, and join Activision. So uh, it's kind of interesting once West and Zampella leave uh, for behind Activision's back, talking with EA yet again. Uh, it sounds like those boys uh, do have some issues with uh, creative freedom uh, when they're trying to seek it out um, for the use of uh, big companies. The more they play with these guys, the more they seem to get burned. Um But uh, I should also point out that a a almost extended edition of Call of Duty um, was released um, on many platforms um, with Treyarch's Call of Duty World at War. World at War basically is 50% Call of Duty 1. It it pretty much recreates the original Call of Duty, throwing in um, Pacific Theater um, uh, plot lines intermixed, which is why it's also one of the longest games. but uh, for the most part you can play World at War and it's kind of this remixed edition of Call of Duty 1 and then obviously Call of Duty 1 um released on both uh, PS1 I believe and definitely on 360 um uh as uh, as a as a download title um that uh, that was also free with certain editions of uh, World at War um, so very interesting that they would release that game because it would, it would literally show you <laughs> that, uh, that most of Treyarch, uh, Treyarch stuff, uh, kinda ripped off, uh, you know uh that for World at War. Now granted, you know, World at War would also introduce uh zombies and, and other things like that, but I'm I'm now rambling. But uh it would introduce zombies, the Pacific Theater, and definitely a more dynamic multiplayer with vehicles and stuff like that. So so it's not it's not just like an H D remake by any stretch of the imagination, but it is important to note that yeah, you're gonna feel very familiar if you play Call of Duty One and then World at War back to back. You're gonna be like, huh Okay, yeah, I see how this they both end the same, you know, you can see where it all kind of came together. Um but when you go back and play Call of Duty now, it's impressive as to how well it holds up. It's actually a very cool game um with some very interesting concepts. So, um concepts that would definitely be part of the establishment of, of the series as a whole. Um but yeah, so that's the roots of Call of Duty. Um, I'm sorry, that one was a little bit shorter. There was a lot less to talk about um, in terms of the history of the company. But it is still interesting to know your roots and kind of where these things come from. Um, so uh, without further ado, we're going to kind of wrap this uh, episode up a little short. Um, but I did want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, um, we are uh, at the end of uh, November. Um, so it is time to to uh you know pick our our winner um, for the the contest and this uh this month I'm kind of proud kind of displeased to say uh like I'm I'm very happy about the community but I'm displeased that this is the only outlet I'm taking from but uh because of no comments uh, left on the website and because of no uh, mail to the show um, or new reviews, this is solely to uh people who participated in the forums this month um over at uh easy mode unlocked um or you can just click on forums at the main page of gaming history one oh one and uh here we go live on the air i 'm going to select uh from the uh eighteen contestants for uh this month 's winner so here we go. Um, for those that don't know, the way I fairly choose a winner is I list out uh, each person as they uh, left a comment or something that gets them entered and then I roll a, uh, a, a a die in this case a d20 die from like you know a die set um, and uh, if we get 19 or 20 I'll re-roll otherwise uh, it will define a winner. so I don't know if you're gonna hear the die when I roll it right now, but here we go. And, uh, look at that. Okay. Um, the winner is Annie. So Annie, congratulations. You have won yourself a fresh pristine digital copy of Chrono Trigger if you want it. Now, I do believe Annie might have already gotten Chrono Trigger, but, uh, don't worry Annie, I will be contacting you privately. I know how to do so. And we'll discuss, uh either how to get your digital copy if you want it or um something else you know we can work something else out um but uh, the reason she won chrono trigger is because uh this uh this upcoming month's uh, game club is chrono trigger uh we just did Mickey castle illusion uh last week and so this week we're going to be moving on and doing um uh, uh chrono trigger or this month we're going to be moving on and doing chrono trigger uh you got to complete it basically by new year's uh the first uh show in january which I believe will be like uh, the second or the third or something like that, will be uh, the Chrono Trigger discussion. And um, uh, it's going to be slightly long, but I, I for- don't foresee it going over about two hours because uh, uh, Chrono Trigger is only like a 20-hour game and it, it shouldn't take that long. Um, those of you who listen to this that are fellow podcasters, uh, let me know if you're interested in being on there. I'm kind of narrowing down who's going to be on that show, but I think only one or two guests maybe. Um, and hopefully I'm not doing it alone, but we'll see. (laughs) Depends on who actually beats Chrono Trigger and who's played it. Um, but if you go over to the forums, we're talking about Chrono Trigger, definitely get involved, um, get started on it. Uh, I'm, I'm on my second time uh, ever playing the game and, uh, and i've i've right now gotten to uh, just into the prehistoric era so for the first time so for those that have played the game you kind of know where i am pretty close to the front but uh, you know a good solid 5 hours in um and, uh, and and so yeah there's that uh and last but not least i'd also like to announce that uh, for december um We're I'm going to be doing some interesting stuff, but basically because it is the holidays and it's the season for giving, uh, I'm going to be giving you guys, you know, I'm going to be giving myself presents, which is basically um, I'm going to be writing about whatever the hell I want to and uh that means you're going to be seeing some very interesting stuff um, and uh and but but for your use and because I always like to keep it practical I will be posting up um, some buyers guides which are basically going to be light articles probably not too much text um with video on um, if you want to buy a retro console you know kind of what you need to look for, like if you want a Nintendo, what, what cords do you need with it? What does it need to be hooked up? What do you or don't you know? What needs memory cards? What doesn't? What, you know, needs a special chip in order to, you know, work with imports? Or how hard is it to play games on imports? And, and why would you care about European versus American games? And, um, and things like that. So, <clears throat> since I've got almost every console on the market, and that's not a brag thing, that's so I can, physically demonstrate them for you. I'm going to be making a bunch of these videos uh, just so that you guys know. Um, another thing I've also noticed is a lot of people have been asking me lately, probably because of the holidays, what you should pay for some of these consoles. And eBay is not a good judge because eBay will always be overpriced because it's people who will let those things sit on there 30 days at a time. And if they don't sell, they'll just renew them until they do sell as like storefront items. So um, usually if you're paying eBay prices, you are paying the highest out there. Um, so it gives you a good idea to be a more tactical you know, kind of buyer. So those buying guides should probably go live early in the month, um, just so that you guys can utilize them. Also, it's a good thing. I, I'll, I'll use clean language and everything. It's a good thing for parents, um, so that you can take a look at and, uh, you know, you can give a, give them links to the video if you really care or something, uh, or friends or relatives if, if they want to know what to look for when they're buying these, these retro consoles. But a lot of people just, you know, kind of don't know, um, what it is. And especially when you get into the Franken console stuff, like a Sega CD and a Sega 32 X, um, it's very useful to know exactly what chords you need because that can make or break those consoles. So, um, so look for those going live. The last part is uh, Christmas stories. So I want people's Christmas stories. I'm going to do a Christmas episode where all we do is talk about our memories from Christmas. So go all, if you want to go onto the forums, um, Look for the thread. I'm going to be starting it uh, probably probably in December. So early December, look for that thread to start up. And it will be for you to uh, post up and share your Christmas stories for reading on the show. Please note in your post whether or not you want to be mentioned by name, gamer tag, or neither as anonymous. Um, you can also email them to me, spidersvenom at gmail.com or you can um, obviously record an MP3 of your story. I do ask that you keep it under five minutes and try to make it as clear and concise as possible. And uh, also email them to me at spidersvenom or we can work something out where we can put them on like a shared drive or something. Um, and I will, uh, I will do a cutoff for all those stories of the 20th of December. And then I will compile them all together and hopefully we'll have a good, you know, hour plus show of everyone's fun stories. And if not, I've got a bunch of crazy stories I can throw in there. Um, so we should also have a lot of guests doing stuff. So I'm hoping to get maybe some retro people you know from the big name stuff, but I always try to do that stuff and it never really works out. So we'll see. Um, and definitely lots of, uh, my podcast guests and friends in the podcasting world, uh, will, have already volunteered to contribute to this, so it'll be great. Um, so, yeah, that's about it. Um, the site's gaminghistory101.com. Uh, we 're on Stitcher and iTunes, uh, please leave us a review on or thumbs up us on Stitcher or leave us a review on iTunes. Um, you know you don 't really place until you get more people and uh, I have a pretty good following right now in terms of hits and everything like that. So those of you who listen on a regular basis, thank you very much, um, but I can always get more and i 'd love to build up this community. The more people we have, the more we can start talking, and the more interesting the game clubs will get. Um, So we we will uh, move forward with that soon. Um, But in the end, I leave you with a great song done by um, fellow podcasting host. um, But he's definitely in a league um, different than mine. uh, Video Game Outsiders host uh, John Jacobson doing a... uh, a song called Halo 2 Stupid Heads, which, uh, points out basically all of the fun and, and hatred we have towards all the glitchers that are out there in the world. It started pretty much on consoles with Halo 2, and, uh, John did his, uh, fun little episode back when that came out, uh, about, uh, his annoyance with that. So without further ado, I give you Halo Stupid Heads. <music> And so it seemed to be the best idea yet. A revolutionary way to play against players of similar skill. But little did I know What's lay ahead?